There's been some controversy over the years in terms of when we actually hold a Bible study because during parts of the year, if we have a new moon Bible study, uh, sunsets around 4.30 or so, so anytime we start it and finish it, it's on that day that is the first day of the new moon, uh, the new month that has just started. However, in the summer, uh, as it's getting here in June, and the days get just a little bit longer up until the 21st, uh, you have to wait until 8.45 or so for sundown before you begin a Bible study. And I think we need to understand that when God originally set up the heavens, <clears throat> the new moon occurred every 30 days at sundown, uh, and the days and nights then, uh, well, let me back up a minute. Since that was the moment that the sundown occurred, uh, that was when you would do it, of course. And it was it was like clockwork every month. However, uh, when the heavens were changed, the new moon can occur in the middle of the night, middle of the afternoon. It can be any time uh, in a 24-hour period. So things are not in perfect condition like they used to be when God originally created the heavens and the earth. And now we are having to deal with that in terms of uh, uh, the equinox, in terms of the new moon, and of course sundown is always at sundown. Uh, and we can't get it perfect. But I have felt that God does talk about uh, coming together to recognize a new moon. And we felt that a Bible study was probably a good thing to do to recognize the new month as it arrives. So uh, we started doing that. <clears throat> we, have a, we have not been having, if it comes on a Friday evening, uh, we've not been having a Bible study because we have a, a meeting on the first day, Sabbath, or even toward the end of, uh, of Saturday if it comes. So we have the Bible studies on the nights that are not at the beginning or end of the Sabbath, let's say, uh, to mark it because the Sabbath marks it uh, otherwise. And maybe we ought to do it regardless, I don't know. Uh, it's just a, simply, I think, a matter of administration there. But I have not felt that it is a problem to even begin and even to end that Bible study before sundown. We're still marking that which is just ahead of us. We're marking the first day of the month, and it will be arriving within an hour or two or three or whatever, depending on what time we have the Bible study. I really doubt that uh, King Saul paid much attention to that. They they had a dinner hour. I don't know what time of day it was in Saul's day. Dinner time is different times in different cultures. Some people eat right at five, some at six or seven or eight or whatever is their custom. But David was expected at dinner every night, and then Jonathan mentioned that, well, it's new moon, and you're certainly going to be expected to be there for that as well. And if the new moon came, uh, or if it was in the summer and the the day was long, uh, I doubt if Saul changed the uh, dinner time for the whole uh, castle staff, if you will, 
and upset everybody's schedule and when food would be prepared and when people would come in from the fields and everything else uh, just because it was Numa. They probably continue to do it at the same time that they normally did every day of the week. But New Moon was important because that's how we keep track of the months and therefore how we keep track of the feast, as God tells us. So we could get picky about it, but I think the fact that we're marking that which is just ahead is is not a problem. Uh, and we are doing what we can to recognize the new month is there, and that the day following, whether a Bible study is over or not, we know that at sundown it begins the first of the month, and we were doing the Bible study in order of in in honor of that first day of the month that is incoming. We could wait in cases like this until the first day of the month is almost over and have a Bible study so that it would be on the first day. But then you're looking backward as opposed to looking forward to that which is about to happen. So I think the way we're doing it certainly would comply with the principle of what God would have us do in marking the months even though it might start uh, and stop even before Bible study. That being said, uh, I have in mind to change the Bible study tomorrow evening. It is the beginning of the first month. Uh, <coughs> uh, we were scheduled to meet at 7.30, but uh, due to some scheduling things, I'd like to move that to 5.30. That'll make Al... Al Terry happy. He likes to be home and in his chair and have dinner early, I think. So uh, let's have Bible study at 5.30 tomorrow instead of 7.30. In any case, it would have been over before sundown, <laughs> so it really doesn't matter. We're still marking that first month. Also, of course, uh, a week from tomorrow, Sunday the 12th, is Pentecost. This is the sixth Sabbath and counting toward Pentecost. Next Sabbath is the 7th, and then the next day is Pentecost. So Pentecost is always on a Sunday. The Jews don't agree with that. They keep Siv on 6, no matter if it falls on a Tuesday or a Friday. But God says count seven Sabbaths, and then the next day is Pentecost. So Pentecost, Sunday the 12th, a week from tomorrow, and we'll have a, we'll have a regular Sabbath service, of course, on the 7th Sabbath. Uh, at 1, and I think we'll just go ahead and do the same thing with Pentecost, have it at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. We're small now, and we don't have a lot of speakers, and, and Nelson just recently spoke, so we'll just have the one service. 1 o'clock on Sunday the 12th. So you can all on the telephone line translate that to what time it'll be in your area as you normally do. Okay, I think that's all we have for announcements for today. So let's get into God's Word, which is ultimately what we're here for. Of course, we'll have a potluck after Pentecost service like we always do on a holy day. I think that's understood. Now, we got into James, or on the subject of faith at least, and began to get into Hebrews and James a couple of weeks ago, uh, showing that our faith in God, in great part, is based on uh, what we see that he has created. Now, our faith can be increased in different ways when we trust God 
and pray faithfully, as we'll find later in James being mentioned, but God can answer prayers, and those things will strengthen our faith. But our initial faith in God has to be based on, as Hebrews 11 says, things that we don't see. I mean, evidence of things not seen. We don't see God. We only see what He has done. And seeing, in that sense, is, or should be, believing. Because the intricacy of the universe He created is so overwhelming that it had to have been done by very, very high intelligence and capacity and ability. So, we talked about the basis of faith being the creation of God. Then, getting five verses into James, uh, he introduces wisdom, and that if any man lacks it, God is willing to give wisdom if we ask. So, there we took a detour and talked about the basis of wisdom and showed quite a few scriptures uh, indicating that fearing God is the beginning of wisdom. Once you have the awe and respect and even fear and trembling of God, he says that he will look to the man who is contrite and trembles at his word. <laughs> so not only he is a being, but the word that he has given us, the word of God, uh, imparts wisdom. So uh, as we study his word, we begin to understand how things work and how we ought to live, and that is wise, that is wisdom. Most people don't understand God, and they don't understand His Word, and therefore they are living foolishly and don't understand the true wisdom. They might have worldly wisdom and how to make money, but worldly wisdom doesn't gain you anything in terms of eternity or the kingdom of God. We have to have godly wisdom, true wisdom, not just how to do certain things here on the earth. Physical wisdom and spiritual wisdom are very, very different things. <clears throat> spiritual wisdom can lead to physical wisdom, however, if you follow what God says in the, in the Bible. So, he tells us if we lack wisdom, we need to learn to fear God and his word as we saw last week. Now let's pick it up in verse 6 of chapter 1 of James. But let him ask in faith nothing wavering. For he that wavers is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. So we have to have a deep, abiding faith in God so that we totally and utterly trust him that if we do the things he says, we will be blessed, and things will work for us, and everything will ultimately turn out right. Now, he's already told us that we will have different temptations right off the bat when he started the book in verse 2, and that we are to learn patience in those. And in learning patience, we then become high in character. <coughs> the patience is based on faith, is it not? Faith in God and then being patient to see his answers when and how he decides to deliver them. But that will make us uh, mature and entire in lacking nothing if we wait patiently, trusting God for what he has promised. So we can't waver. <clears throat> he says if you are tossed back and forth and your faith is, is weak, 
and goes like the waves of the ocean, let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the eternal. So believing in God one day and not believing in God the next day is a recipe for disaster. That has to be a deep abiding faith that does not equivocate. Uh, <coughs> does not allow for doubt that there is a God. We have to prove it once and for all. We have to know it, and then we have to live it. He says, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Now, what does that mean? It means that, as Christ said in Matthew 6, 24, you can't serve God and mammon, or human flesh, or God and money, or God and the things of this world. Because you will be wishy-washy and go back and forth and forth and back. You have to put your entire life, your entire being, with God. He says that uh, we become slaves of Christ. And a slave does whatever the master bids. He doesn't have his own options. Uh, he does what the master bids. And God is the master, and he's given this book to us, and it tells us, gives us instruction on what he wants us to do, how he wants us to act, uh, how to live, how to eat, how to walk, how to drink, how to work, how to play. The Bible covers every facet of life. And if we flop back and forth with the world, that makes us unstable. That's why he tells us to bring every thought into the captivity of Christ and to walk as he walked and to follow in his footsteps. Uh, any any thought that is worldly or wrong, we have to put out and bring into captivity. Uh, when you captivate something, you control it. You bring it under your control, whether it be a rabbit snare or a, or a bird net or whatever you, it is, you bring something under your control. So he tells us that even all our thoughts have to be brought under control. Uh, human beings are filled with thoughts of vanity, ego, jealousy, pride, uh, you name it. Uh, and those have to be controlled and not allowed to thrive in your mind or to dwell on those things. <clears throat> So we we can't play church. We can't live two two lives. You know, come all dress up and come to services and, and uh, be nice for a few hours, and then go back to worldly thoughts and worldly activities. That doesn't mean that we can't seek entertainment here and there of one kind or another. But we need to be careful that it is not something that is ungodly. In other words, we don't have to go around with our head bows and our and our hands folded in front of us as we go through life. Uh, you know, you can't work in that position. But when you are working, you need to be sure you're working according to God's will. And His will is that we be productive for our employer, that we be honest, that we be true, uh, that since the laborer is worthy of his hire, then the manager is worthy of our loyalty and our help and our productivity. 
because his business depends upon productivity, whatever that business may be. So we have an obligation before God to work as Christ would work, to produce as Christ would produce. I'm sure, as a boy and as a young man, as a carpenter, uh, he worked hard for his dad or for his uncle or whoever he might have been working for at some period in his life. Because that is the way God says that we should be. Verse 9, let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted. Now, we know from 1 Corinthians one twenty-six that God calls the weak and the base. So, we have people primarily whom God is calling in this age who are not high in society in any way. They are of low degree financially, educationally in many cases, even mentally and uh, IQ-wise, perhaps. Uh, God doesn't call the sharpest, brightest, and most noble by any means, but generally those who are weak and base. Now, his purpose is to turn them into something that is honorable and powerful and serving and giving and loving and worth saving, worth having around. That's what he wants us to become, something that would be a credit to his kingdom forevermore, a bright light. something he would look to and say, I'm very happy to have that individual in my kingdom. So that is the goal and the purpose we're striving for here. So he says if you were of low degree, uh, you're exalted. Now, how are you exalted? Well, you're taken from the redneck bar you were living in, perhaps, or the welfare you were living on, or uh, whatever place of low degree you were, and you're exalted by the very fact that God opens your mind and begins to put his incredible knowledge there in the understanding of his ways. Then when we repent, that is change, turn, and be different in the way that we think and act and do, and where our commitment lies, we become baptized and by the laying on of hands of the ministry, he gives his Holy Spirit uh, to that person, which then begets them uh, so that they might someday be born into his kingdom once they reach the level of maturity to be born when Christ returns. (laughs) So here we were, going along in this world, just doing our thing, whatever it might have been, and where would that have ended up? Death for all of us, as, Paul's, or as, uh, as Solomon said in the book of Ecclesiastes, all things happen to them the same. Everybody lives and everybody dies. So it uh, doesn't matter right at the moment whether you're young or old. You've got about 70, 80, 90 years on this earth and you're going to die. Some of us are getting toward the bottom of that curve and some of us are just starting up the side, but you've only got about that much time regardless. And I think, as I said last week, the life expectancy of the average American now is probably two, three years. uh, And they'll all be dead, except for 10%, because of prophecy, not because of natural causes. So, how are we exalted? We are made candidates to be part of the first fruits, the 144,000, the bride of Christ. 
Now that's a that's an incredible exultation for somebody who is just going through the motions down here building houses or whatever. <clears throat> but the rich, in that he is made low, because as the flower of the grass he shall pass away. So you have the extremes in this life, in that sense. You have those who are just common normal people who don't have much, and they're offered kingship in the kingdom of God. And then you have those who have been rich on this earth who consider themselves in the position of kings and priests or overlords or important, and they have to come to realize that they have to change their lives too. And that as important as they might have thought they were on this earth, they're nothing unless they become part of the kingdom of God because the same thing happens to the poor man and the rich man. They both die. <clears throat> so... Sometimes those who are nothing, let's say, in the society or just the average people have to recognize without becoming self-righteous and self-important that God has exalted them and given them an opportunity to be in his kingdom. And that requires a change in the way you look at yourself. You can't, if you haven't been a big success on this earth, you can't look at yourself anymore as a failure. If you look upon yourself as a failure in this life, then it is very, very difficult to achieve the success that God wants you to have spiritually because you have been accustomed to alter your life of looking at yourself as unimportant, or unneeded, or unwanted, or unloved, or under underappreciated, or whatever else has bogged you down and made you uh, discouraged, or frustrated, or uh, feeling unimportant. So we have to come to understand how important we are in the scheme of things, according to God's plan, without then becoming self-righteous and thinking we're above the rest of the world around us. God doesn't call, for the most part, those who are important around us. He calls those who aren't. And he wants us to become special through his power. So we always have to recognize that any spiritual success we begin to have, that is overcoming, changing, growing, becoming what God wants us to be, is going to be through his spirit, through his power, as he says there in Zechariah 4, not by might, not by strength, but by my spirit, says the eternal, will anything be accomplished. Man cannot accomplish anything spiritually and eternally whatsoever. It has to be by the Spirit of God. So as long as we keep things in perspective, we can begin to view ourselves as important to God's plan, but don't give ourselves credit for it. Give him credit for it. That way you can have a balanced, correct approach to life. I will become a success through my Father and my brother in heaven who can help me be that. You weren't before. Now, what makes you think you suddenly would have become important or rich, short of winning a lottery? <laughs> you know? You wouldn't have made whatever changes in education and understanding and drive as opposed to laziness or whatever, <laughs> on your own you wouldn't have made those changes to become what God wants you to be. 
So it requires conversion and Him working in us. So we have to always give God credit for whatever success, whatever progress we make in overcoming and growing. So we have to rejoice in that we are exalted into the position of potential sons of God in the kingdom. Rejoice in that, but give him credit for it, because we couldn't have even begun to understand had he not opened our mind. And if he did, that was all on him. It didn't have anything to do with us. Although he does say, seeking, he does say, seeking you will find. So he is much more prone to open your mind and help you understand if you set out to seek him and find him. Now, doesn't that make sense? You see two people out there in the world, and this one could care less about anything important or godly or anything else. But they may be just alike. They might be working on the same church. They might be in the same family. One might have an interest in finding out about God and the other doesn't. So one doesn't even try, and the other one says, I don't know about God. I'm going to seek him. I'm going to try to find out who God is. Now, which of those minds is God most likely, though? <laughs> you know, he truly speaks. He says, you'll find. I'll, I'll leave you to me. <laughs> so if you have been basically nothing in this world, you have changed your attitude. Understand, God has put you in a very exalted position, a potential son of his kingdom, and rejoice in that, and get over your depression and your frustration and your fears of failure and your worries and all those things that you set a human being, and trust God that he will see the process through, and if you will be part of his kingdom. Well, that requires a change for all of us who are of low degree. And in the rich, the self-importance has to get rid of his self-importance and come to recognize that, oh yeah, you might have been clever or smart or worldly wise and you may have accumulated or inherited riches, but that doesn't make you better than anybody else. And in fact, it is uh, a strike against you because God is Christ who has said, but for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God was like a camel going through the eye of a needle. So, very, very difficult because it is so hard for the self-important and the self-righteous to become humble and meek and serving, giving, and loving. So the rich can't be unstable and can't be self-righteous. But he's going to be like the flower of the grass and die as well. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withers the grass, and the flower of arrow falls, and the grace of the fashion of it perishes. So also shall the rich man fade away in his way. That's the message of the end time, Isaiah 40. Says, What shall I cry? The flesh will wither, or men will wither as the grass. There is a time when God is going to cause the rich to be made low. So wither like the grass. It isn't a natural, normal, uh, cyclic thing. It is an end of the age destruction and withering and burning of mankind. 
on a major basis. <laughs> so this was written to impart instruction, but right now it's becoming a very now prophecy as well. <laughs> Verse 12. Blessed is the man that endures temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the eternal has promised to them that love him. Now, every man is tempted. Christ is tempted even as we are. He has every impulse. I, won't, I, I, I don't know where that cuts off or when an impulse or a thought becomes sin specifically because he never sinned. But he had the impulse to do anything and everything that any human being has ever desired to do. Anything illegal, anything immoral. Uh, he was tempted like his we are. So the thought he said it, the consideration was there, the desire was there for whatever uh, was tempting him at the moment. Now he's going to explain here uh, what Christ went through. And I think shed some light on it in terms of what Christ did and did not do, what we must not do either. Uh, we're all going to receive temptation. Some will endure it, some will conquer it. Sometimes we all give in to temptation, whatever that temptation may be. Some of lesser things, some of greater things. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life. So, temptation is there for a purpose. God made us human with all the desires of humanity for the purpose of trying us, for seeing if we will go Satan's and human way, or if we'll go God's way. So it's, it's designed into us in the time we're born. So we will be tempted with all kinds of wrong things. Adam and Eve were tempted there in the dark. God didn't do it. Satan came and tempted them. But really, wasn't it their own flesh, their own desires, that were the temptation? All Satan did was play on those. The vanity, the lust, the greed, the jealousy, the envy that is inherent in a human being, they had a tendency for it. And all he did was exploit that. And they caved in. And every human being since has caved in, except he was came down from heaven. To more or lesser degrees, depending on how uh, the human being. So he said, if you do it, you withstand it, you don't get into it, uh, he's going to promise a crown of life to the eternal life. Let no man say when you're tempted, I am tempted of God. God tempts no man, he says. He can't be tempted with evil, neither can see any man. So no temptation comes from God. Any temptation we've ever had came from our own flesh or Satan working on our flesh. He even explains that here. Verse 14, But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. So whatever is there that you desire, 
steal something, lie, adultery, murder, you name it. Anything that has to do with love, vanity, greed, jealousy, envy, and so on that is a human trait. You have a wrong desire, and if you serve it out, you become enticed by it, and then what happens? Then when the lust is conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. So when we have a wrong thought, we have to do something, because we will begin to be tempted to follow through and do what that thought tells us to do. And we have to be aware that not only is physical breaking of God's law of sin, but Christ made it very clear in the Sermon about that even thinking of sin becomes sin, or thinking of something simple becomes sin. So the thought itself becomes sin. But we let evil imagination go through our minds, those become sin. And then sin in the mind will ultimately lead to sin by the hand. And when the process is finished, the wages of sin is death. So when a thought comes out of the mind that is a wrong thought, it will wind up in our ultimate death unless we do something about it at some point. Now, Christ has the thought. The concept came to his mind. Whatever it might have been. And what he had to do was shut that off, not allow himself to begin to think about that and warm up to that idea. It would have led to him doing so. So when evil came to his mind, and that's what this place is, you aren't tempted unless there's something there that is wrong. A wrong thought. That's what creates the temptation. So when that wrong thought comes, you haven't yet sent. You take control of that thought and you purge it out of your mind immediately before it begins to take hold and it can become thought. You've got to get it out of it. At what point does it become sense? Like I said, if you don't commit adultery, but it says don't even look on a woman with love, because that becomes sense. Well, you can look and you see a woman on the street, maybe she's pretty, and the thought comes to your mind that that's attractive. Then you're in a position to take through that thought process and it becomes sin, or you can shut it out and say, no, I won't know this. So Christ saw the woman on the street, and he had the thought, that's a pretty woman. And he had to stop it there before he began to let his mind uh, go through the process of mentally undressing or whatever thought is tough. So he was tempted in every point like we are. In other words, the desire came to them. The desire to do wrong was actually in Christ's mind. Some people don't want to believe that. But 
but he didn't let it stay there. He didn't let it develop into life. Then he set it off, and that's what we have to do. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of life, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. So don't blame God for the way you are. And people do sometimes. They begin to think that, well, God made me this way. Since God made me this way, I guess I have to act this way. No, you can't blame God. Every good and perfect thing, every good gift comes from above. But the evil comes from man and faith. So if you have evil thoughts or evil imaginations or accusations or negative thoughts toward another human being, for instance, that doesn't come from God. That comes from your human nature or faith. can't come from anywhere else because James says, don't make a mistake here. Don't blame it on God. He made you the way you are so that you might come to have faith and patience. I guess that might not work. They gave me another one. That one working? Okay. Maybe they're not hearing it on the phone one. I want to echo in there. Maybe it's hearing, but just not well. Anyway. Uh, we don't blame our troubles on God and say, well, God, you made me this way. I've heard actually people actually say that. Well, God made me this way. I guess that's the way I'll be. No, he says be converted, be changed. Don't be the way you've been. We talked about that other uh, up above, about the brother of low degree changing his whole attitude and approach toward life and coming to see there is a light at the end of the tunnel through God. Uh, as a human being, there's no light. There's only death ahead. So realize it's you when you are enticed and tempted, and Satan will take advantage of that, and then you are in trouble. So let's go on down to verse 18. Of his own will, he begot us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So he's emphasizing here again that if we've been called, if we've had our minds opened and are begotten, of his spirit to be born into his kingdom. It was his will. It was he who opened our mind. John put it a little differently in John 6:44. If any man uh, come, he has to be drawn of the Father. It has to be through the, the spirit of the Father. And here, James puts it, it has God's own will, that we are begotten with the word of truth. And that we should be a cut, the first resurrection open to those he is calling now. And we can be part of the first fruits. Christ, the first of the first fruits, and we who will be changed at his coming. So there is an order of resurrection. Those whom he calls in this age, and those whom he calls in the millennium, and then those in the great white throne judgment, so that every human being who's ever lived or been conceived uh, will ultimately have a chance at salvation. But the first fruits are the ones that are in the first round, the first and the better resurrection. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, now considering this, he says, that God has revealed himself to you. You now have come to have faith that he is there, that he's real, that he's alive, and that he has opened your mind 
and you have committed yourself to him, and you have eternal life to look forward to, he says, therefore, or wherefore, in other words, he's eliciting a response here. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, considering all these things we've just talked about is what he's saying, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak. Now, we could stop right there and probably have a whole sermon. <laughs> See that? We usually are just the opposite. We're swift to speak and slow to hear. So we gotta, we've got to convert that. We have to change that. We have to reverse it. Where we become swift to hear, ready to listen, eager to learn, eager to find out, curious about what God wants and what His ways are. And then we have to be slow to speak. Most of us are not. Most of us, we got our opinion, and brother, we are going to express it. And this is it, and this is what I think. Well, that'll get us in trouble. Because after he says, swift to hear and slow to speak, and most suffers are just the opposite of that, he says, slow to wrath. How quickly we can become angry and wrathful. How quickly we can become condemning and accusing of others. How quickly we can read motives into what we think we, we think they're saying, thinking, or doing. <clears throat> well, he says, understand, God is way higher than we are. And if He so desires or so chooses to grant us opportunity to be a first fruit, then we better stop and think pretty seriously and not be double minded and not be trying to live two lives, but absolutely committed to doing what God wants done, to fulfill the purposes of a human being on this earth. So he goes on to explain, for the wrath of man works not the righteousness of God. An angry person, a person who is angry a lot, or has an angry attitude, is not does not have the righteousness of God working in him. Can we understand that? God is slow to anger, very slow to anger, and his anger lasts only a short time, and his anger is always righteous anger. Most anger that me, the people have is not righteous anger. Most of it is because their feelings have been hurt, they thought they were wronged, they thought they were cheated, they were defrauded, they were hurt, uh, somebody didn't treat them the way they wanted to treat them, be treated. They didn't speak and didn't smile as big as you thought they should have. They only waved with one finger instead of five. Uh, whatever it is that hurts our feelings, we become easily angered, easily frustrated, miffed, put off, ticked, whatever word you want to use. That's human, and it does not work the righteousness of God. He's slow to wrath. He does not condemn quickly, just not the way he is. So, if you are angry, or you tend to get angry real easily over things that aren't righteous anger, of course, everybody thinks their anger is righteous. <laughs> there's, there's the rub. I'm angry, and I have a reason to be. <laughs> but in most cases, our, our reason is selfish. We have to realize that. We have 
we can't deceive ourselves. Most human anger is self-righteousness and selfishness. That's why he says the wrath of man works not the righteousness of God. So if you're a man, a human, you can be a woman too, he's not, he's not being sexist here. If you, as a human being, tend to get angry, you had better question very deeply, very seriously, whether that is righteous anger or not. Because nearly all the anger of man does not work the righteousness of God. And flipping the coin over, nearly all anger that man has is unrighteous. If it doesn't work righteousness, it's working unrighteousness. Okay? So if you're angry, or you see someone who lives with an angry attitude, uh, you need to pray for yourself and change, or you need to pray for them that they will change, because they are not living and thinking righteously if they're angry. Then he, he compounds it. He says, Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness. <coughs> Get rid of every evil thought. Any thought that is of lust, vanity, greed, jealousy, or envy, or any of those works of the flesh that Galatians 5 talks about, or <clears throat> other characteristics of the flesh that other scripture talks about. You can't let your mind dwell on anything immoral or filthy or wrong or contrary to God's word. Uh, and the superfluity of naughtiness, what, what does that mean? Um, could it mean ribald humor? Could it be things that people do that, on, let's say on a television or a movie screen, they do something, maybe they're only acting, but they're acting out sin. And then we can sit back and say, well, that's just superfluous. That's, that's not important. Uh, they're not really sinning, and I'm not really sinning. But what they're doing is putting in you, you in a mood to take sin lightly, to laugh at it. Whether it be immorality in terms of man and woman, or man and man or woman and woman, or all the garbage that is on the TVs and movies and Internet today. Uh, you, you can't... You, you stay away from all filthiness, and then you can't even take those things that are wrong and make jokes in light of them and use them as entertainment. I think that's the, uh, the principle of what he's trying to get across here. And receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. So what man is putting out there on the media as so-called entertainment will not gain you eternal life. It, it just won't do it. Uh, what are all these video games, or whatever they call them these days, most of them based on? Violence? Death? Killing? Uh, Weird-looking things that are satanic? Uh, science fiction basically is Satanism, is what it is. 
And when people go to science fiction movies and they do science fiction war games and violence and so on, and then uh, the lust of the flesh comes in there because they have female types that are supposedly voluptuous along with it, and it incites lust, and violence is what it incites. That is not what we have to have. <clears throat> so all of that wrong stuff that's out there will take us away from the kingdom of God. So he says you have to receive with meekness the engrafted word. Now what is a graft? If we're talking about a fruit tree, you have a tree that's there, and it may be a certain type of apple tree, let's say, and somebody wants, instead of planting another tree, they want to have that apple tree produce two types of apples. <clears throat> so they do a graft. They take a limb off of a different type of apple, cut a slot in a branch on this apple tree, and put that in there, and wrap it all up, and it begins to grow as part of the original tree, but it will produce a different type of apple. That's, that's grafting in a different type of apple. Now, we are called trees in Scripture and prophecy. God refers to human beings as trees. Now, we are a certain type of tree. And what is it that we produce as a human being normally and naturally? Uh, I'm going to go over to Galatians 5. Let's, let's nail this in. Galatians 5, uh, verse 17. Well, let's go to verse 16. This I say then, walk in the Spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh. James is talking about the same thing back here. For the flesh, the flesh lusts against the Spirit. They are opposed one to another. God's way and the flesh are diametrically opposed to each other. They're the opposite. Any natural thought a human being has is contrary to God. That's why he says our minds by nature are deceitful and a little wicked. No, he says desperately wicked. That's what the human mind is. These are contrary the one to the other. Opposed, opposite is what I just said. So that you cannot do the things that you would. But if you let of the Spirit or be led of the Spirit, you're not under the penalty of the law. Now, here are the works of the flesh. Here's the kind of tree we are. Okay? Adultery, fornication, any kind of uncleanness, any kind of lawlessness, don't want to keep the law, don't want to do what, we want to do what we want to do, idolatry, putting any and everything, and especially self, ahead of God, witchcraft, or Satanism, Rebellion and witchcraft are the same thing because Satan is the leading witch and he rebels against God. So Satan and witchcraft are the same thing. And rebellion is the same thing as witchcraft. It's a, it's a satanic attitude. Wrath. Well, James has been talking about wrath and not and being very slow to wrath. Unrighteous anger is natural to a human being. Strife, not getting along, fighting, uh, being against one another, uh, sedition, going against government that has been duly appointed, 
is what sedition is. Uh, heresy, false teaching. Human beings like to have itching ears. They like to be told what they want to hear. So heresy or false doctrine uh, is brought on. That's what Satan did with Adam and Eve. That was a heresy. The heresy was that God is not God, but I'm God and you're God. So the heresy he taught was idolatry, first and foremost. Envying. We envy anything or anybody. That's natural. I wish I was as pretty as you. I wish I was as rich as you. I wish I was uh, as smart as you. I wish, I wish, I wish. I wish I had that car and you didn't. Whatever it is. Murders. Any thoughts of uh, doing away with someone or wishing they were dead uh, is the same as murder. Or assassinating their character uh, is spiritual murder. That's so natural to human beings. Drunkenness. Hey, that's, that's normal. That's human. That's the way to be. He's drunk. That's the natural way. If you like alcohol, it isn't natural to control it. It's natural to misuse and abuse it. And many, many do. <clears throat> uh, reveling. Uh, that's the wrong kind of partying. And, and such like. <laughs> Anything else that is contrary to God that grows through your mind. Okay, that's the kind of tree we are. That describes us perfectly. We're like a weed on the earth by nature. A tree that produces ugly, mean, nasty, wretched things. Oh, you, no. Human beings are basically good, they'll tell you. Well, if we're so good, why is the world in the shape it's in today, I ask you? <laughs> it's full of violence and strife and murder and war and anger and uh, lying and cheating and stealing and immorality and everything you can name is what the world is. That's what the natural human tree is, is evil. Now, does it make sense when he says we need to receive with meekness the engrafted word? It is not natural for us to think like God thinks or do according to his word and his will and his law. That's not natural to us. It has to be grafted in. And when you do a graft, you have to be careful with it. You have to do it just right or the, the new that you are grafting in will die. Uh, because it doesn't have a root system uh, that is developed so that it can get the, the succor, the, the nutrients from the tree that it was grafted into. And we are babes when we are engrafted into the Word of God. And it takes time for us to come to understand and to make the changes we need to make. And we spend the rest of our lives trying to thwart <clears throat> the natural desires of the tree that we were as a human being. And, and thrive on the Spirit of God. So, meekness is required because we are full of pride and vanity. We don't like to be wrong. We don't like to be told we're wrong. We don't want our thought patterns that we've had all our lives. We like our thought patterns for the most part, don't we? I wouldn't have this opinion if it wasn't my opinion. I wouldn't think the way I do unless I thought the way I do. 
I wouldn't believe this unless I believed it. I think I'm right. Don't most people think they're right? If they thought they're wrong, they'd have a different idea. But no, they think they're right, or they wouldn't think the way they think. So we have to realize that our way of thinking is stinking thinking. That we are an evil, unrighteous tree by nature. And that we have to meekly say, Oh God, change me, save me, fix me. As Herbert Armstrong used to put it, I'm just a pile of burned out junk. Useless. Need to go to the landfill. Be covered up. I'm rotten. That's what we have to come to see. And then begin, however slowly, to think the way God thinks. To graft His words, His thoughts into our minds and emotions. And change our opinions from what they have been in this world to what He says in this book they ought to be. So He says, get rid of you and become like me. That's what he wants us to do. And then he drills it in by saying, but be you doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. People can say, well, I keep the feast. I go to church. I'm, I'm okay. We did that in Worldwide. We, we were going through the motions. We were keeping the Sabbath and keeping the feast, more or less. Uh, but we were not putting aside all of our evil thinking, and thinking the way God wants us to think. That is the error. <clears throat> that is why people are making such a huge mistake when they try to revive worldwide and make it just like it was, or build nicer buildings or whatever they do, to say, we're okay, because what we were in worldwide was okay. No, it wasn't. God blew it apart. <clears throat> now, we had essentially correct doctrine. We understood the Sabbath and the holy days and various things. We understood the purpose of man. We understood the gettle and born into the kingdom of God. We had a lot of things right, but we weren't doers of the word. Well, I was doing the word. I was keeping the Sabbath and the holy days. What about your mind? What about your emotions? What about your thoughts? That's what he's saying we got to change. We weren't. We were, we were rolling along, going through the motions, but we weren't bringing every thought into the captivity of Christ. We were not working at godliness in the way that God wants us to work at godliness. That's where our problem was. That's what we've got to change. What is Laodiceanism? Yeah, taking it for granted, going through the motions, doing what we think we ought to be doing. And God blew that apart. He hated it. He wants wholeheartedness. Wholeheartedness. To this man will I look. It's contrite and trembles at my word. So we were hearers, but we weren't truly doers in the way that he wants it done. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man beholding his natural face in a glass, for he beholds himself and goes his way and straightway forgets what manner of man he was. <coughs> Sometimes we don't want to know what we really look like. We're willing to forget what we look like in the mirror and move on. That he says, you better look in that mirror. You better see what's really there. 
and you better get busy changing it. Whoso looks into the perfect law of liberty, not just in a physical mirror to see his own image, but looks in the law of liberty, that's this word right here, and continues therein, does what it says to do, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. So when it says in here to bring every thought into the captivity of Christ, that's what he means. He means do that. When it says lay aside all the filthiness and the garbage and the lust and vanity and greed and jealousy and envy that normally goes through your mind, you get rid of that. You work at it every moment of every day. That's a doer. Not just on Sabbath or whatever. If any man among you seem to be religious, you know there are a lot of people on earth that seem to be religious. It doesn't really matter whether they're Hindu or Shintoist or Presbyterian or, or what. They appear to be religious, but they don't control their tongue, but deceives his own heart. This man's religion is vain. Vanity doesn't mean anything, because he says you need to start controlling your mind so that your tongue will be controlled. And if we speak accusation and anger and lust and vanity and greed and jealousy and put down of others and accusing others, a satanic thing, then our religion is vain. We're not controlling or bridling our mind or our tongue. Now let's contrast the pure religion. Pure religion and undefiled before God. And the Father is this. To visit the fatherless and widows and their affliction, take care of those who uh, are unfortunate in various ways in life, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Not spotted by the world. Now, you can put on garments of righteousness, but if you go out in this world and you partake in its entertainment, its ways, its thinking, that spots you. It puts dark spots on you. And if those spots are not removed by the blood of Christ, they'll kill you. So, James is leading up to something here. <laughs> and that is that you need to have faith and patience and wisdom and serve God. But that faith, we're going to find probably next week, without works, is dead. It has to be living faith. It has to be based on the things that you do. And that's what he's introducing here. Not a hearer, but a doer of the word.